Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Actually, we've just touched on this top story, haven't we, with uh, Nikki's I've been thinking, uh, dear Nikki, your rude ex-friends, they don't deserve you. I would be your friend, except I'd be way too starstruck. Love your books, by the way. Uh, but to this n- newly sworn Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters has accused state-funded media organisations, TVNZ and RNZ, of a lack of independence from the previous government. Are they independent? Well, isn't that fascinating? I haven't seen evidence of that in the last three years, Mr Peters said, who went on to say, you can't defend the $55 million of bribery, cannot defend that, get it very clear. Now, that $55 million uh journalism fund went on to fund the likes of RNZ, NZME, ODT, Stuff Media, Newsroom, News Hub, Business Desk, Indian Newslink, many, many more. Also, the coalition government, which had its first cabinet meeting today, has promised to cut the use of Māori across the public service, including RNZ and TVNZ. Now, Morning Report did quite a bit on this, so let's take it back up on the panel with Associate Professor Peter Thompson, Media and Communications Programme at Victoria University. Dr Thompson, kia ora. This $55 million fund that's been talked a lot about, can you explain for our listeners just why why you think it was needed? What was the actual purpose of it? Well, it came out of the COVID pandemic, of course. And what we saw during that time is that the news media had suffered a major decline in their commercial revenues from advertising because the advertisers weren't, uh, weren't, funding, weren't funding the media anymore. You know, people weren't going to the shops. They couldn't. Um, and so the, the government realised that, that certainly with the, uh, the closure of a number of titles under the buyer group, the magazines all, all got closed down. I think there was a concern that some news media might follow suit and the news media collectively are vital to democracy and the government had decided that it needed to do something uh, to support them in their recovery over the the COVID period. Could it have been sold better as a message? I mean, you've got this multi-million dollar deal to fund media. Um, Could the message, because it ties to the idea, does it not, of uh, the media being uh, hand in glove with the government? Well, I think that that argument was made by a number of mischievous commentators, including from the opposition, who wanted to criticise the bill. I mean, the the mainstream media that were benefiting from 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 this fund, you know, were obviously quite pleased to receive it. Although the the way in which there were certain conditions attached to the uh, to the fund, I think, became contentious. You've got to remember that this was operated at arm's length through New Zealand On Air, which has operated for decades without any such contentious claim. I mean, it's actually been funded in factual content, including some forms of news, since about 2009. So I I, I don't think it was self-evident that this was going to become a a, a real issue of contention. Okay, let's go on the panel on this. Uh, Nicky, we'll come to you later. Let's get... Nicky, your thoughts or comments on this first? (laughs) Well... Uh, look, I think it's Winston being Winston and showing us that he's back. Um, he clearly uh, works on winding uh, the media up, and uh, they've bitten in this case. What I'm interested to know, though, and that perhaps you could ask answer this, is that $55 million fund, is it still in operation or has it finished? No. So it's no, a, it's finished. It's, so, it's, so we're talking about a past... Um, fund that was available. There's no actual current issue. It's just sort of throwing rocks, really. 
Well, yes, but there, there is still, is there not, Peter, that lingering distrust in mainstream media? It's fair to say that there is that. I think the mainstream, you know, the mainstream media has been blamed for for all sorts of things by by certain you know certain constituencies in the political spectrum, um, but but this wide reporting of of the fund being mistrusted, I, I think came from the fact that there were some some you know strings attached to this fund. It's important to remember, though, that the kinds of news that it was going to fund wasn't just regular commercial news. It was there to fund public interest news, the kinds of genres that wouldn't normally be funded in a very tight commercial environment. And I think it's very unfortunate that some commentators and politicians, either through malice or or ignorance, have been responsible for spreading what has to be called disinformation about this fund. I think it's frankly ridiculous to conflate the operation of New Zealand on Air, which has funded factual content in some areas of news for many years, you know, with a model where supposedly the government's on the phone to the editors, you know, directly influencing editorial decisions. That just didn't happen. It's not true. I'll come back to you, Nick. Nicky. Let's get you in. How do we fund journalism? So the government can't can't fund it. Advertisers still are a little bit but not as much. People are unwilling to pay. They don't like paywalls. So, I mean, moving forward, how do we fund journalism? Well, well, I've, I've got a, an idea that I've been uh, going on about for, for some years now, and that would be to introduce a, a general levy on a wide range of commercial uh, media operations, but especially the digital platforms, which have captured a huge amount of the, of the advertising market. I mean, even if you put a 1% or 2% uh, levy on on those big platforms. You know, you could afford to operate something like the Public Interest Journalism Fund very easily, and the government wouldn't need to touch it. You know, it'd be arm's length from government, and it would just operate through a levy mechanism. And that would I mean, get rid of that. Already been... And sorry, Peter, that would probably get rid of that notion of the, the uh, that so-called influence. Um, stay there, Peter. We'll come back to you, but uh, Nick. Uh, well, I was just interested to ask another question, um, and that was: Did this require a? a, a a, a higher than usual Māori content or Māori reporting as well. This the fund. But the, there were there were some parts of the fund that were designated for Māori journalism training, and if you wanted to be funded for a particular um, journalism newsbeat involving Māori or particular Māori reporting, there were some recommendations about how to go about representing those Māori perspectives. And this is where I think it really became contentious, because for some on the political right, this was a, this was a dog whistle. You know, some, something to do with Māori, you've got, to re, you've got to respect the treaty in your reporting, and they thought this was, it was intrinsically ideological. And I think we have to interrogate that, and I'm not sure if we've got time to go into the detail today, but one of the, I think what's really important to, to, to recognise is that apart from the, the historical under-reporting and often misreporting of Māori perspectives, that these criticisms suggest that there's a single monolithic Māori view, which is somehow inherently left-wing. And yet what we see, of course, is that there's Māori represented across the political spectrum, including political parties, and there's many different points of view within the Māori community, many of which we never hear. So it was really seen as a compensatory mechanism to actually increase the diversity of perspectives available in the news. And the idea that this was somehow, you know, the government on the phone to the to the editors, making them represent treaty 
treaty issues in a particular way. You know, it, it's just a complete misreading, and I, and I think it was mischievous. Right. Can I just bring in actually on that, uh, while we have you here, Dr. Thompson, this promise to cut the use of, or the, uh, the proposed uh, issue of cutting the use of te reo Māori uh, in official language across public service, including perhaps RNZ and TVNZ. How do you read this issue? Well, I think I've got three words for that, right-wing populism. <laughs> it, it, it seems rather strange to me that for a government that campaigned on a, on, on a cost-of-living crisis, you know, I wonder if they've actually costed the removal of Terio content from government but again, again, names again, and documentation. Just pushing back on that, is there a case to be made that, like the um, uh, $55 million fund, you have to take, or perhaps even co-governance, that is, you've got to take the population along with you over time? Well, if in that case, you've got to take the whole population with us. And, of course, te reo is an official language, as, as is New Zealand Sign Language, for that matter. So the, the idea, if you're going to be inclusive in the media, particularly with publicly owned media, I mean, I, I, I'm really quite shocked that they propose re- removing Terrio from, from, the, from the programming or, or, or their documentation. Yep. I mean, it's, it seems intrinsic to me that that's, that's part of the, the, the bicultural community that we live in, and it should be there. Do you think that in some ways, though, I mean, I felt very despondent about this, but then I thought for the past sort of 10 years, there's been an enormous amount of mahi done by a lot of people to regenerate Māori language, to, to you know, to bring it more into the fore. And they've made incredible strides. And I feel like three old guys in government, you know, they might slow Not progress. Not that old. But I, <laughs> David Seymour's old. They might slow... He's mentally old. They might slow progress, yeah. But are they really going to reverse it? Because I, And I especially feel with young people, you know, they're really embracing Te Reo Māori. And personally... I feel like I haven't embraced it enough and now I'm motivated to do yeah, it a lot more. Good. Hey, I'm Peter Thompson, nice to have you on the programme. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Wallace. Uh, that's uh, Media and Communi- Communications Programme. Just briefly around the panel, 10 seconds before we get to our next guest. On that, uh, the issue was raised with Prime Minister Chris Luxon. Would you uh, rename Te Papa, Te Papa Tongarewa? Uh, around the panel, would you, Nikki? No, I wouldn't rename anything. I think that... I'm, I think we should embrace bilingualism. Nick, Nick Leggett, you, uh, New Zealand, no, New Zealand no sounds better. Um, I, I, and I think keeping a Māori name and an English name for uh, government institutions is the right thing to do, which I think Christopher Luxon has also said that uh, they'll stay. But actually, if you look at the fantastic result that Waka Kotahi has, everybody knows what Waka Kotahi is now. There's even been polling to show that. But there are other departments where people are struggling. They don't know what the name means. And uh, I think it's a, I think you just got to let the, just, you got to put it out, as Nikki said, we've, we've come so far, we'll keep, it's a journey, and we'll keep making progress on it. And so I don't think we need political sticky fingers too much into it, to be honest. Right. 19 past four, the panel RNZ National. No doubt if you're in Auckland and starting your Christmas shopping, you have just had it up to here with the traffic, a crash or rain, roads come to a standstill. November, December traffic, oh, bad. How to cope with our clogged traffic has been arguably our biggest issue facing the super city. An opinion piece came out in the Herald uh, yesterday, I think it was, looking at the true costs of congestion. Mayor of Auckland, Wayne Brown, has put the cost of congestion at around a billion a year. With us, Tim Hazeldean, Emeritus Professor in Economics at the Business School, Auckland University. Uh, Professor Hazeldean, welcome to the show. 
Uh, monetizing congestion. How would you arrive at a figure like a billion a year? I mean, just for a car to go a little bit slower in breakfast or evening time home from work. It's a lot of money. It is, and I haven't verified that particular number, yeah. but the, the way it's done is you you look at the speed that you're getting in our arterial roads and our motorways and rush hours, and you compare that with the open road, unrestricted speed, and you you get a you get a time difference in the length of people's trips, and then you assign twenty dollars a minute or an hour or whatever to their time, and that gives you the congestion cost. What I found, because we've talked about this quite a bit on the panel, because it's a big deal for uh, people listening in, they might be driving home. What yeah. I found interesting in your opinion, Peter, is you, 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 you proposed a possible solution. I'd never heard of this. You subscribed to my, what be called an Uber-style surge of pricing when you get into your car. Explain it to our listeners. Yeah, well, if the, the mayor's idea is, say, he suggested a $5 a tax every time you go inside the cordon around central Auckland, about 17 roads apparently. Um, but it would make sense, given the technology we have these days, and Uber users, for example, to say, well, why not $15 if it's really bad or nothing at all if, if for some reason the roads are quite clear? And we could uh, we could do that. And people had apps on their phones they could pick up what the latest price is going to be if they do travel on the motorway. And they could make the decision whether to wait a bit longer or, or go for it. Nick, you, uh, you'll be all over this because this has been a big part of your sector. Can you see this working? I can see this actually happening in about 20 years' time. Oh, you actually jump in your car, you, you look at your app, oh, surge pricing, I'll wait an hour. Look, I think it'll happen before that. And I, I really like the idea of this dynamic pricing that yeah. can move, ra- move around. And look, the truth is we've got to properly cost the use of of, of a road and of transport. To do that, we've also got to have really good public transport so people have got an alternative. But what we have coming down the line is this electronic pricing that will be able to be installed in every vehicle in the country. So this this will actually be part of your vehicle's uh, components uh, in you know, a few years' time. So, so, so the government will be able to know what road you're driving on when and charge you accordingly. And if you think about all the road user charges and all of the sort of things that you have to go through to, to, to jump through hoops where it comes to registering your car and what have you, that is going to be a lot simpler. That you know, It'll be a, essentially a per kilometre cost. And I think that's... If, if we want to actually be able to build infrastructure appropriately, we've actually got to charge uh, the, 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 the cost to mm. understand what people will use and the level to which they will actually use it. We'll come back to you, Tim. Let's get Nikki in. Public transport's going to be the key, though, right? Isn't it? Like, I mean, if you live in one of these big new subdivisions, say out in Kumu in West Auckland, you ain't getting the train into the city because there isn't one. I think I've seen about four buses. Um, so those people, to get to their jobs, have got to drive. And it is miserable at the moment. The congestion for people oh. going in to the city is miserable. Unreal, isn't it? Yeah. So... Unless you can give these people a viable alternative, and I have not seen any talk of how you can make a train link from, I mean, sort of the whole sort of Helensville, that whole route has become hugely congested. And respond to both of them? Well, yeah, I mean, trains are a, are a 
talked, I think. Just want buses, more bus lanes and faster buses. And if congestion pricing, when it works, it works by speeding up the speeds on the road, and that will speed up the bus speed, which will mean buses will become more attractive and, and the frequency will be higher. And, you know, and the congestion money can go to further improving the service. So I think you definitely make public transit better the mere act of reducing congestion for cars will also reduce it for buses. Um, what I do like is that, because you are suggesting that a well-done congestion charge could bring in, say, I mean, it's ballpark, of course, isn't it, around $500 million a year. I mean, that's uh, one could do a lot with that, Tim. Yeah, you could. You could do all sorts of things with our buses in particular that, well, they yeah, you really could um, make a big difference. Maybe even free buses during uh, peak periods, not free off-peak. There are things that could be done with that money that would also ease the burden for lower-income people who find it, would find it difficult to pay the congestion charge in their car. Very nice to have you on the programme, Tim. Kia ora. That's Tim Hazeldean, a professor in economics at Auckland University. Needless to say, uh, Nick, this is you, you, I guess you've been poring over these ideas because of productivity. Um, when traffic is slow, you are in this area, it really hits those trucks, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, it stops. If you think about, say, a truck running, uh, you know, pouring concrete or uh, working a construction site, and it has to do four trips a day, but congestion means it only does three, you're slowing the whole job. And that's that's the the, the, the picture, I think, that, that people, um, you know, often are interested in when we talk about these issues because, yes, it's it's you being delayed going to work or dropping the kids off school, that, that is, there is a cost to that delay, but also, you know, cars sitting in traffic, uh, congested traffic, obviously emit more in terms of uh, their CO2. So uh, there are a whole lot of reasons to, mm. to improve this. And um, I just want to say as well, I, there was a, a study out, and I can't remember who did it, but it was some 10 years ago that uh, put congestion, uh, the cost of congestion at $1.2 billion a year in Auckland. Let's face it, it will have increased significantly from that. So I think we're talking you know, well in excess of that $1 billion uh, amount. Good on you. The panel on RNZ National, Nikki Pellegrino and Nick Leggett with me this afternoon. Well, certainly misread the room on this particular issue. Fruitcake, do you eat it uh, or make it? It may be one of the longest standing festive traditions, but Nigella Lawson has urged people to ditch Christmas cake this year and opt for a cake that people like. And I said they couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Nadella said, "Eat chocolate cake, not fruit cake." Uh, but New Zealand has spoken, or at least the panel listeners have spoken. And in droves, I've had more feedback about this than anything uh, in the last week. And that is, stay with the fruit cake. Alison joins us now. Alison, welcome to the panel. Hi, Wallace. Now. Tell us your fruitcake story. Well, fruitcake's always been a tradition in our family. Christmas, birthdays, weddings, and, um, of course, you know, years ago, my mum would have made it on the farm, and um, we all carry on the tradition. It always, always comes out for birthdays. And, yes, I'm in my 60s now, but um, having about to have a birthday, my um, 
sisters and brother and I got together for lunch recently, and lo and behold, one of my sisters, Eileen, had made me a birthday cake, and it was a beautiful fruit cake, and Jenny and I stick with almond paste made made from hand uh-huh. and um, white icing and decorated the top. And it, it, it was absolutely beautiful. You get a wonderful flavour in a um, fruit cake like that. And it does keep for a long time, so you don't have to throw it out. It does keep. Enough. It does keep. It I'll does give keep. you. I'll give you that, Alison. I'll give you. I'll give you that. Uh, <laughs> Especially if you put a bit of brandy over the top, Wallace. <laughs> I have to say, I'm. I'm not with you on the marzipan and icing. I think the yeah. cake is great, but with a nice sharp bit of cheddar cheese, that's the Northern English way. Cheddar cheese cheddar and fruit cheese cake. And fruit. Oh, you've got to try it, Wallace. Yeah. A nice yeah. moist fruit cake. Yeah, yeah. I think the, yeah. the marzipan... I have had a version where you just put nuts on the top or nuts and cherries on the top. And, yeah. You know, no icing. Yeah. Alison, yeah. have a great Christmas, and thank you for your, fr- <laughs> your, fr- your fr- I'm loving it, your fruit cake. Yeah, all right. And someone else who also loves their fruit cake this Christmas is Joanne, who's with us. Welcome, Joanne. Hello. From the wonderful Papamoa Beach area. So what about you? What do you do? Well, my mother also used to make beautiful Christmas cakes. Um, I'm sure the moistness came from the brandy and the sherry that the fruit was soaked in for several days before she baked the cake. And then she spoiled it by putting this ghastly vanilla or, or almond icing and then the white icing that came in a block and, and she rolled them out on the on the kitchen table yeah. and covered the cake with it. It was horrid. So I used to take the icing off and, and stick it to the underside of the dining room table and then and then <laughs> eat the cake. It was so now you're so naughty, Joanne. I always was. I yeah. was always a trouble for raiding the pantry. But truly we 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 when I say we, I mean my mother. Um, the, the Christmas cake was so big and people on farm were always so generous with their goodies that she also bought about 20 little silver tins and everybody who came to visit between the beginning of December and January the 6th got a little piece of Christmas cake to take home with them in the tin and people that she'd invited for Christmas and, and we had lots of people stay over Christmas. Um, people who hadn't been able to get there, she'd post them. <laughs> oh, that's just gorgeous. Uh, so maybe I've read the rune wrong, Nick Leggett. I don't know about you. Uh, as a mayor of Portadour, did you sort of uh, imbibe the Christmas cake at functions? I bet you did. Probably. Um, but I, you know, it was certainly something that my grandparents' generation were really into and we had, you know, one every Christmas and as they've uh, you know, moved on, uh, passed on, the Christmas cakes have disappeared. I'm, I'm you know, pleased. That's been one positive about that uh, because I was never a fan. But look, Wallace, you've, I'm sure you've probably done some research. You know how the way that we've talked about the fact they last? I yes. understand that, like, during war years, um, you know, where things didn't keep, you know, nothing kept as well, uh, fruitcake was actually that one, that one staple you could have to feed your guests uh, if they, you know, if they arrived unexpectedly. And, of course, it, it, did, it did preserve, and um, it was, that's why it became such a staple for New Zealand. Yeah, but it's not a reason to keep eating fruitcake, is it? Just because it lasts. But Joanne, <laughs> no. I, lo- I love your story. Uh, and go well this Christmas and enjoy that dark fruitcake with nuts. Let me just tell you a little coincidence. Yes. A couple of guests ago, you spoke to, 
So Alison. Yes. My surname, my maiden name was Alison. So I was Joanne Alison. Now, how's that for coincidence? Oh, that's wacky. Some, that's wacky. I'm having this, this year, and I have for many, many years, um, I've bought Ernest Adams to a cake, a fruit cake for the Lions Club. And the Lions Club sell one kilo square Christmas cakes, icing or un- iced or unice. And they're beautiful. And, I, they're not too, and they're not too big, and they won't last for six months. I feel like it's almost Christmas Eve already, Joanne, the way you're talking. Thank you Thank for you. being with us on the panel. Oh, they're just rolling through, my goodness gracious. Um, to finish off here, James Wellington, he is a, a, a fellow fruitcake hater. Uh, 20 years <laughs> ago, I made the mistake of complimenting my mother-in-law's fruitcake. <laughs> Now she gives me one every year. It's far too late to come clean. And my wife, who also hates fruitcake, thinks it's hilarious. Don't force your fruitcakes on, people, even if you think they enjoy them, says James in Wellington.